This is Macro Horizons, episode 86, Powell Play, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk from the upcoming week of September 14th. And with mid-September now upon us, we'll be the first to eagerly bid farewell to the summer of COVID. Don't let the door hit you in the mask on the way out. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week that just passed, the most notable takeaways were not things that did happen, but rather events that didn't occur, or more aptly, price action that didn't materialize. First up, we started the week with a decidedly negative tone for risk assets. Equity markets were well off the highs, albeit fresh record highs, and we had a pretty benign response in the rates market. 10-year yields holding a range between 60 and 70 basis points is not the stuff that makes for exciting rate strategy. Even on Friday, when we had a much higher than expected core CPI print at 0.4% month over month for August, Treasuries still managed to shrug. In fact, we actually saw a modest bid as a result of some of the composition within the Consumer Price Inflation Index. Now, it did end up being heavily weighted toward used autos, and we're interpreting this as an intuitive residual of the pandemic. Specifically, given the focus on avoiding mass transit, it does follow intuitively that people who are fleeing the cities for the suburbs would find themselves in need of a vehicle. Whether or not this ultimately ends up being a sustainable trend remains to be seen, although our baseline assumption is it will be very difficult to continue to see back-to-back gains in used auto prices. That isn't to suggest that core inflation was entirely limited to autos. We did see an increase in housing costs as well as apparel and some of the other components. Overall, it was a relatively broad-based take on inflation, which makes the market's price action all the more perplexing. At one point, there will be a stage where inflation in the system is perceived to reduce the probability that the Fed will need to act in the future. We're not there yet, as the Fed still has several available options to pursue an easier monetary policy stance. And given the Fed's recent change in the framework, the idea that the Fed would quickly pivot to address near-term realized inflation prints seems to be a bit misplaced given all of the macro headwinds that are facing the global economy. So with that context, 10-year yields in a 65 to 75 range with upward pressure further out the curve as 30s are between 140 and 145 
would suggest that we'll be heading into next week's FOMC meeting in a fairly balanced position. Now, this is relevant because there is a fair amount of information that the Fed will provide via their updated projections. And so a clean read from which to interpret the market's response to some of these very specific projections, I think will be very useful in helping to calibrate expectations for the market between now and the end of the year. So it was a meaningfully higher than expected inflation read, and yet the market behaved in a way that is almost exactly the opposite of what one might expect. What's the takeaway here? Yeah, Ben, I think you're right. We had the highest core CPI year-over-year print since March. And in outright NSA terms, the index is back to the highest levels we've seen. Now, that obviously makes sense when we're in an inflationary environment. But the fact of the matter is that the Treasury market was bare steepening immediately ahead of the release. We saw a modest initial bid, and then effectively nothing happened after that. So that certainly led to a series of questions and a lot of confusion on the part of market participants, ourselves included. And one clear takeaway was that there was so much concentration within the inflation series on one component that the market was content to dismiss the overall move as one-off. And specifically, that component was used auto sales. Now, given the broader pandemic realities, a bidding up of used cars, frankly, makes sense. People are very reluctant to take public transportation, given everything that's going on with COVID-19. And that, when combined with the flight to the suburbs, i.e. from the urban areas, you need a car if you didn't previously have one, really does conform with the data that we saw. And it also speaks to the idea that it is pandemic-related, it is one-off, and most importantly, it's not the demand-side type of inflation linked with wage pressures that the Fed would like to see before they truly start getting and, excited about inflation coming back into the system. And on the, and on the flip side of that, I do think it is important to emphasize that while the 5.4% monthly jump in used car prices definitely contributed roughly 40% to the increase in core prices, I think it is still fair to say that we've moved past the point in the pandemic where there's a real risk of the deflationary spiral. As the CPI indices themselves showed, the fact that consumer prices, used cars excluded, are still rising is encouraging insofar as it indicates that we've now moved past the point where sustained negative inflation was a risk that was on some people's radar back in the early days of the outbreak. Well, there was always going to be pockets of inflation related to the pandemic. And I think that that's one of the aspects of looking at the aggregate data that makes it somewhat more difficult for us to truly say there's zero chance of disinflationary pressures over the course of the next several years. Now, nonetheless, Ben, to your point, I think that the risks of a deflationary spiral, at least in 2020, are off the table for the time being. It's also important to emphasize that these developments are taking place in a longer-running trend dating back well before covid Next week, we get an update on retail sales, and if we look at the different components of retail sales, since 2010, non-store, i.e. online sales, have performed extremely well. Same with motor vehicles, same with building materials. Lumber especially was a factor this month. 
On the other hand, and this is kind of consistent with that K-shaped recovery where there are going to be pockets of inflation and pockets of deflation, gasoline, electronics, clothing and apparel, these expenditures still are below where they were in January 2010. So I'm 100% on board that there are going to be pockets of inflation well above 2%. There are going to be pockets of inflation well below 2%. And looking at one singular aggregate figure in a K-shaped recovery really can kind of miss the trees for the forest, if you will. Lumber is reflationary. This all leads to the next obvious question, and that is... The upcoming week, we have the FOMC meeting. Does anything that's going on in the real economy truly warrant a change in monetary policy at this point? Our baseline assumption is no. We were somewhat concerned when we saw that initial drop in equity prices that we would see equity volatility spike and thereby tighten financial conditions, which would prompt the Fed to deliver something. But Equity prices, along with the treasury market, appear to have found equilibrium as the Fed event approaches. This buys the Fed some time. We're increasingly of the mind that November is off the table, and so that puts a lot of focus on the December meeting. In the very near term, I think that the most interesting thing to come out of next week's FOMC will be the updated projections. So we get 2023 as a new addition to the beloved dot plot, as well as projections for growth, inflation, and unemployment. The unemployment will be especially interesting to watch. Back in June, the end 2020 median forecast was for unemployment to be at 9.3% at the end of the year. The last payrolls read we got, it was already at 8.4%. So one has to imagine those are going to get revised lower. Now, normally, a major FOMC forecast revision to lower unemployment would correspond to kind of tighter monetary policy in a classic Taylor rule framework. However, because of the Fed's new framework, they've explicitly told us that they are not going to stand in the way of a tight labor market. So this all kind of begs the question of, say, the Fed revises down their unemployment forecasts pretty notably, does that matter for the path of policy or is everything beholden to the inflation outlook? I would say that an incremental downward revision to unemployment expectations is pretty consensus at this point. And to Powell's broader concern, we really didn't see a great deal of broad-based wage pressures during the last cycle until the very end, when the unemployment rate was much lower than I think many had anticipated it would ultimately be. So fast forward to the next cycle, an unemployment target below 5% really doesn't seem unreasonable given everything that's going on. Beyond the unemployment forecast, there are a couple potential policy changes that the FOMC could undertake next week. I'm skeptical that they'll actually embark on any, but these range from a formal pivot to outcome-based forward guidance, adjusting the purchase parameters of the QE program to backload them, have more emphasis on 10, 20, and 30-year bonds, for example, or even in an extremely unlikely scenario, something of a pivot with regards to yield curve control, where all of a sudden that's back in vogue. 
I don't really expect any of these developments to occur next week, though I can't completely remove them from the table. And I think instead the nuance that we're going to see is how the conversation evolves on these topics. One would expect that they are open for discussion next week inside the committee, even if something isn't formally agreed on. As a result, Powell's press conference will be very illuminating here, as well as any follow-on Fed speak in the following weeks. Whatever happened to the whatever happened to the second round of fiscal stimulus that Washington was expected to deliver before the election? Go fish. Is fish reflationary too? In all seriousness, I think that the fact that the Senate was unable to get pushed through a slimmed down fiscal 2.0 bill is very meaningful. If for no other reason, then it materially reduces the probability that anything occurs ahead of the election. Now, while one might be sympathetic to the politics associated with a bailout so close to election day, the fact of the matter is that a lot of the initial bailout programs have run their course, and to characterize it as a wily coyote moment for the U.S. economy isn't really that far off the mark. There's not the same degree of support underlying the prospects for consumption as well as the prospects for employees returning to the labor market. And what concerns me is how this interacts with the calendar year and once again we're back to the virus. We've had a summer where it's been largely characterized by people going back to work, employers rehiring, and spending largely picking up. Going forward into fall and winter, we're going to see more and more indoor activity because of the weather. This is much more difficult to do during a pandemic, and it isn't too difficult to imagine a scenario where you start to see either a plateauing or potential step backwards, either in consumption behavior or hiring needs. If we have kind of that version of a second wave or a second slowdown in spending even, and that interacts with a lack of fiscal support... This could be extremely negative for a lot of households' balance sheets. And then the final piece of the puzzle to flag here is we've seen a V-shaped recovery in components of the economy, but we have not seen a V-shaped recovery in consumer confidence. If all of this interacts with skeptical or concerned households, the Wiley Coyote phrasing might not be too far out of the possibility. We've also seen a string of high-profile bankruptcies come across the tape recently. And what strikes me is, yes, we certainly knew that frontline service sector firms and retailers were going to be under pressure as a result of some of the significant changes in consumption patterns. But to a large extent, risk assets in the equity market in particular hasn't really been quite as concerned about that as, frankly, I would have expected. We still have the S&P 500 comfortably above 3,300 at the moment, and prospects for a more material correction seem to be limited, frankly. One thing I was especially surprised by following that news out of Washington this week was the scale of the reaction in equities. Leading into this week, it was widely assumed that quote-unquote fiscal 2.0 was a big reason why we saw stocks so swiftly retraced to their all-time highs. Now that that seems to no longer be a foregone conclusion, the fact that equities are now essentially where they were going into the pandemic and still only off roughly 6% from the peaks they set last week to me suggests incrementally more staying power to the rally than at least I thought coming into this week. 
And Ben, one of the dynamics we saw this week that I think is really important to emphasize is there's been at least some comparisons between the vaccines to last year's trade deal. Do we get one? Do we not get one? There's a huge amount of market focus on it. The old joke that market rallies on vaccine or trade deal hopes. But there's an incredibly important nuance here, and it's that last year there was one trade deal. If that trade deal falls through, a lot of valuations can take a step back. This week, we saw a vaccine take a step back by having testing paused. However, there are several other vaccines going forward. It creates a much more sustainable dynamic in that even if some fail, well, there are always others that you can look to. This is inherently different from last year's trade deal. And to me, means that the market doesn't have to respond as aggressively to step backs or disappointment in vaccine research as long as there are others in the pipeline. John, I think you make a particularly good point. And there's also the aspect of, unlike the trade war, this is the development of a vaccine. I think market participants can understand the ramifications from a trade war a lot more readily than they can the nuances of the development of a vaccine. To your point, just because one trial doesn't have the desired outcome doesn't mean that that might not ultimately be the vaccine that comes back after a reworking. And again, there are multiple options out there. So I would argue that the lack of experience in interpreting the process of developing a vaccine can help to contribute to the underlying bullish pressure for risk assets. And I'll look for the cloud and the silver lining here by just saying I completely agree with John's take on the difference between the vaccine and the trade war. But this time around, I think there is a little bit greater sense of urgency, just given the fact that the longer consumers are unable to spend in the way they did before the pandemic, the greater the hit to revenues and the more likely that more and more firms ultimately fold. So while I'm completely on board that there's not just one vaccine, like there was just one trade deal, I do think timing matters more in the race for a vaccine than it did in the race for a phase one trade deal like we saw last year. Yeah, I think there's no question that the stakes are higher for the global economy for a vaccine than they would be for a U.S.-China trade deal. Although I'd be interested to know how universally that opinion is held. One other timing consideration to be attentive to over the next few months, you know, we haven't spent this week talking much about the presidential election. But Ian, I'm fully on board that passing a fiscal stimulus in the next, call it six weeks ahead of the election, is going to be very difficult. The question then becomes, when might a fiscal stimulus occur after the election? Is this something that could occur between election day and inauguration? Or are we waiting for Q1 2021? And on the topic of polls, the Institutional Investors Annual Poll is now open for the Global Fixed Income Survey. And for those who enjoy the podcast and would like to support us in the process, please reach out and we'll be happy to give you all the information that's needed to cast a vote for Team Macro Horizons. Ian, is there a best bad joke category this year? You know, people keep talking about this thing called bad jokes. I don't really get it. Ian, do I have some news for you? Is it about fiscal bailout deal 2.0? In the week ahead, the most important event will be Wednesday's FOMC decision. 
The consensus as it currently stands is that the Fed will not be compelled to introduce any new additional efforts on the easing front. We will, however, get the updated economic projections as well as the new 2023 dot. Takeaway, lower for a very, very long time. On the data front, we get retail sales on Wednesday morning. The consensus is looking for a 1% increase in August. Now, with the backdrop of everything that we saw in terms of the increase in COVID-19 cases throughout this summer, positive retail sales growth is constructive in an environment such as this. There are a few episodes of supply on the horizon one being the 20-year, which is $22 billion on Tuesday, and then 10-year tips, which is $12 billion. We always struggle with how to appropriately interpret demand for tips. On the one hand, it is inflation protection, so a soft auction would be implicitly bullish for the nominal market because investors are not interested in paying up for inflation protection over the course of the next 10 years in the example of Thursday's auction. So that should put downward pressure on rates in the belly of the curve. The flip side is in light of Friday's CPI print and the Fed's shift in framework to allow inflationary pressures to run much hotter than they have in the past for a longer period of time, there should emerge a structural bid for tips at some point. We'll be watching very closely to see the results of this week's auctions in this context. Beyond that, September's University of Michigan consumer sentiment print is expected to come in at a relatively benign 75. We've been talking about and focused a bit on the translation of everything that's going on in the global economy to consumer confidence. Now, given how strong the correlation is between consumer confidence and consumption, this will be an important indication as the third quarter comes to an end and the fourth quarter is set to begin. Political news will be an important backdrop over the course of the next several weeks. Obviously, in the run-up to the election, the differences between the Biden and the Trump campaign will presumably add a little bit more context for the ways in which policy might change after November. We will soon be entering the stage where we expect that positions will be established for the election itself. Once we're through next week's FOMC meeting, there are a few top-tier data releases between then and the election. And let us not forget, we also have the phase three results of some of the vaccine trials. But as a theme, the closer we get to the election, the more relevant it will be in guiding the outright level of rates in the treasury market with a nod to the implications for risk assets and the feedback loop to U.S. rates. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with the NFL back on Sunday, we'll reluctantly abandon our fantasy FOMC draft. The greatest idea that never happened. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. 
This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.